This is an audio essay. To read the actual essay, go to mahanmccann.substack.com. The link is in the description on Spotify or whichever platform you're listening on. Oh! Dimensions of meaning in life. Depth. The fourth dimension of meaning in life is not reported in the psychological literature, but was added by cognitive scientist John Verveke. And this dimension is called depth. He describes depth as the felt sense of being connected to what is most real. Depth is a part of the normative order, like significance, which we discussed in the previous essay, which is that in addition to feeling our lives are valuable, important and worthwhile, we need to feel our lives are connected to something that is actually real. Verveke describes this as a core human meta-drive to reality, which he calls ontonormativity, onto meaning reality and normativity relating to what we ought to do. He argues this drive is more important to us than subjective well-being. He uses the example of being in a relationship. Would you want to know if your partner is cheating on you? Most people would say yes, even though learning this truth would radically reduce their subjective well-being. So in this essay, we're going to be reflecting on current conflicts in reality, some recent developments in thought, and finally, how this can help us align our meaning and reality seeking. The modern reality conflict. This is a quote from Carl Jung in Modern Man in Search of a Soul. How totally different did the world appear to medieval man? For him, the earth was eternally fixed and at rest in the centre of the universe. Men were all children of God under the loving care of the Most High, who prepared them for eternal blessedness. And all knew exactly what they should do and how they should conduct themselves in order to rise from a corruptible world to an incorruptible and joyous existence. Such a life no longer seems real to us, even in our dreams. Jung here is pointing out why medieval people didn't suffer from a meaning crisis, despite living much more difficult lives than we do these days. Their worldview, pre-Copernican revolution, placed them at the centre of the universe. They knew how to act, had transcendent value, and were connected to what is most real, God. The myth in which they lived provided a meaningful structure within which their lives could remain meaningful despite the tragedy and suffering of existence. The scientific revolution created a vastly different picture of reality. The discovery of the heliocentric universe indicated that we are not the centre of reality. In fact, we appear to be an infinitesimally small corner of a material clockwork universe which started with an impersonal big bang and is made of matter like dead soil at the bottom of reality. And we cannot explain why we are conscious, why we are here, or even what connection we really have to this dead world. The scientific paradigm, as shown in materialism, is basically a complete inversion of the medieval religious worldview, and in the history of human thought is without precedence. In the 21st century, we live in the wake of this scientific revolution, and to try and return to the deeply meaningful medieval religious worldview is at best naive and at worst complete self-deception. So we are stuck between this rock and a hard place. What is true is essentially meaningless, and what is meaningful is essentially false. 
Our modern epistemology and ontology have caught us on the horns of a dilemma. Truth and nihilism or illusion and meaning. But could materialism be wrong about reality? Is there an alternative perspective that affords us both truth and meaning in life? A best of both worlds, so to speak. And that is what we will be exploring in this essay. Squaring the circle. The problem that split philosophy for 400 years is the problem of perception. The materialist worldview presupposes a naive realism in human perception. That there is a mind-independent world of objects out there and that we record this world like a video camera. The alternative to this position is a naive idealism. That there is nothing really out there in the world but the projected ideas of our own mind. Our perception is really how we touch and grasp what is real, so it has deep philosophical implications. In this section, I'll be arguing for an in-between stance. There is something out there, a reality, and our mind interact with it, but the question of whether or not it is just dead matter is what we will be addressing. The method of empirical science presupposes that our minds are of such a substance that reality is intelligible to us. Thus, through observation, experiment, and repeatability, we are capable of coming to the truth. However, this connection between mind and reality, which affords intelligibility, cannot be proven by the scientific method, because the scientific method presupposes it. It's like how you can't have an experiment to prove the validity of experiments, because the validity of experiments is presupposed in any experiment. The same is true for an argument. You cannot argue for the intelligibility of reality because every argument presupposes that reality is intelligible. Otherwise, if reality was not intelligible to us, no argument could ever be shown to be true or false. The entirety of human knowledge and the possibility of truth rests on this first correspondence between mind and reality. And now, this first presupposition is being questioned from within science itself. Donald Hoffman, cognitive scientist, wrote a book called The Case Against Reality, How Evolution Hid the Truth from Our Eyes. He probably should have rephrased this as the case against naive realism, as the case against reality can be somewhat misappropriated into a kind of matrix-like simulation theory. But his argument is a derivative of Alvin Plantinga's evolutionary argument against naturalism, which is essentially that if we are evolved animals, our perceptual systems evolve for survival and reproduction and not accurate representations of the nature of objective reality. Hoffman claims to have proved this is the case mathematically, but he wasn't the first to start poking holes in the picture of naive realism in what is quickly becoming the counter-enlightenment. If we don't simply perceive material objects in our environment and that the objects that we perceive are of the nature that we perceive them, then reality is going to be more complicated than materialist or physicalist accounts. And of course we know this because of quantum physics and the decoherence between classical physics and quantum physics that Newton is ultimately wrong. But how can we show this on an individual level? Enter Jordan Peterson. In the first line of his first book, Maps of Meaning, Peterson addressed this exact problem. The world can be validly construed as a form for action or as a place of things. He argued evolutionary that human beings exist in the world as a form for action. In other words, we live in a world of what matters, not matter. He argues that our perceptual and action systems are set up for survival and reproduction, not objective reality. He gives the example of a cliff 
which is perceived as a falling off place before it is considered as an ignatius rock formation eroded by the sea and wind, aka a cliff. The advanced technical scientific interpretation of the cliff came much later and is a limit case of our grasping the cliff as a falling off place that threatens our survival. Peterson argues that human beings live in this highly functional imaginary schema for our survival and reproduction and optimal adaptation to reality. But that reality is not equivalent to the functional conceptual model we have made of it. And this this is like and that this is like confusing the map for the terrain. He argues our successful adaptation proves that we understand the reality in which we are in. In this case, there is a mind-independent reality, but we know this reality by conforming our being to the reality in action, not simply naming and categorizing the objects of the world. The current scientific model inappropriately prioritizes the latter of categorizing and naming things. But in this expanded model of truth, Peterson brings back myths, rituals, and religion because these are all means of successful human adaptation to the changing environment. He argues our successful adaptation constitutes an embodied truth. If we are simply deluded, we would be less successful at adaptation, like a person trying to cross a busy motorway while blindfolded. Dr. Ian McGilchrist, who I recently had in the podcast, makes a convergent argument with Peterson based on brain hemispheric differences. McGilchrist argues that the two hemispheres are two fundamentally different types of attention to the world, and that attention meets the world out there, but that it's a two-way relationship. He argues how we attend creates the world around us, and provides the example of a mountain near his home on the Isle of Skye in Scotland. He says that this mountain was in mythology a home of the gods, but then also for sailors it indicated a difficult stretch of sailing ahead. And then for modern geologists it is a unique type of igneous rock. Now the last interpretation would be considered the canonical interpretation, but really seeing the mountain that way as this unique type of igneous rock betrays our values. And to prioritise one canonical interpretation, the geologist, for example, is a kind of tyranny of perspective, which in McGilchrist's argument is a tyranny of the left brain. McGilchrist argues that the left brain is for grabbing and manipulating the world. The left brain represents things, which means it creates a model and a map that is deeply functional, but is not the reality itself. This model creates an appearance of eternal fixity, predetermination, is made of parts and is inanimate. The left brain divides the world but cannot put it back together. McGilchrist argues that the right brain is actually a better transmitter of reality. The right brain, he argues through hemispheric asymmetry, is superior and the proper master of the left brain, which is more like an emissary. It's like a hand that the brain uses for grabbing things, but that it doesn't perceive the terrain, but rather it builds its map. For the right brain, nothing is certain. It's capable of grasping holes and integrating the bigger picture. Focuses on uniqueness and qualities over quantities. McGilchrist argues that the binary thinking of our current culture, and possibly our brain hemispheres, biases us to the conceptual map rather than reality. And that actually what we take to be a separate domain of scientific literal truth is a limit case of truth in general. Representation is a limit case of what is real. 
stasis is a limit case of motion because, as Heraclitus said, you cannot step into the same river twice. Everything is always changing. And he argues that literal language is a limit case of metaphor and not a separate domain. Similarly to C.S. Lewis, that all language is metaphorical. He even points out that the word abstract means being dragged away, which is a physical metaphor, ironically. So he argues that the scientific materialist position has taken the limit case of literal scientific truth to be the case of all truth in general, but that this confuses the map for the terrain. In Cognitive Science, John Verveke argues that relevance realization occurs before our perception of objects. That there is an infinite number of ways to look at an object, and so we identify relevant or salient features before we actually identify the objects. Which means that the bottom of our perception is a valuing process, an implicit judgment of what is valuable and what is not. In other words, to be a cognitive agent, you must see the world through an implicit frame of value, which refutes naive idealism. What we are seeing is not just objects out there, but really the aspects of those objects which are valuable to our implicit frame of value. Verveke expands our ways of knowing reality to what he calls the four Ps, propositions, perspective, procedures, and participation, which adds skills, perspectives, and character traits to knowledge, and hence brings back mythology, ritual, religion, as optimized for these non-propositional ways of knowing reality. Verveke argues that we are locked into a propositional tyranny. The idea that truth is simply linguistic correspondence between the words and the reality. Similarly, Verveke, Peterson, Emma Gilchrist all argue that this is an oversimplification of how we actually perceive and function in the world. Renewing the marriage of meaning and reality. At the root of this new understanding of reality is the Socratic paradox. I know that I know nothing. To overcome our inherent evolved perceptual difficulties, self-deception and self-destruction, a fundamental axiom of self-examination, self-correction and dialogue to bootstrap our vision beyond the merely represented is necessary. It is inevitable from this perspective on truth whereby our connection with reality is dependent upon our pursuit of truth, that the truth is approached asymptotically, like the digits of pi, whereby we gain resolution with each digit, but cannot finish the sequence. The reality is absolute, but our approach is asymptotic, but that is still a real development that is not merely psychological, but ontological. This pursuit of reality occurs at the edge of our knowledge, at the border of order and chaos, which is also where meaning occurs. And Verveke argues that meaning is the instinct that is tracking our optimal development. As we are coming more in contact with reality, we are self-realizing. We are becoming realer by knowing what is realer. This implies that we feel a felt sense of connecting to what is real when we let go of our illusions and pursue reality beyond them, which is a process that is unfinishable. We cannot grasp the ultimate truth, 
but in developing our relationship with truth is ultimately meaningful.